everyone. Thanks for joining. Today, I am speaking with Asra Nomani. Asra is a journalist and an author, and she's a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Network. And she's got a new book out called Woke Army, the Red-Green Alliance that is Destroying American Free America's Freedom. Hi, Asra. Thank you very much for coming on. Oh, thank you so much, Abed. Ah, jackhammer begins, <laughs> which is a good metaphor, um, actually, um, because, you know, there is this concept of some of us as jackhammer parents, jackhammer activists, just out there being disruptors. So it's a perfect um, segue to our conversation. Um, I am so happy to talk to you because you've been in this fight with us since the beginning. And I'm just so happy to report back to you and all your listeners on the progress that we've made. Yeah. So I mentioned your book and I want to talk about that because that's the whole reason. I mean, I, you know, I hadn't heard of critical race theory or anything like that. I got out of school in the early nineties. Um, you know, I'd heard a bit about post-colonialism and post-modernism and stuff like that, but the rest of it, I didn't know anything about. And I got back from working in Afghanistan in 2014 and I started getting called to white supremacists for criticizing Islam. Oh my God. I'm like, you know, A, I'm brown and B, like, where's that coming from? So that's how I started looking into this and reading your book, you know, it ties up a lot of the stuff of, you know, like I'd spoken out about care and candidates, more things like ISNA than it is care. We yeah. don't have them up here. Yeah. And, you know, the discussion, like how, rotten the discussion around islam was and then you know now with all this woke progressive stuff whatever you want to call it you see a lot of the parallels so if you wouldn't mind getting into your book a little bit and like oh yeah what prompted you to do it then you know what you started finding oh absolutely thank you i know a lot of your listeners are going to know who i am but just to give you context give them context i was born in india 1965 and i was born, you know, first generation post-colonialism. So you use that important word. Um, and I was literally post-colonialist. Um, and my father and mother were born in British Raj, India. They were born in the era where the color of their skin, their birthplace, made them second, third, fourth class citizens, right? under that colonial rule. Well, my parents, they got married, they had me and my brother, and where did they choose to arrive for their new life? At the United States of America. And now, fast forward some five decades, and exactly like you say, this nation is facing its own character assassination campaign as a white supremacist nation. So why would my parents have arrived here? You know, they arrived here because my dad fell in love with this country as a young student. He arrived here, and I'll, I'll never forget, he tells me the story. He arrived in Manhattan, Manhattan, Kansas. And, <laughs> yeah, he was, a, he was a, you know, uh, one of many international students going to land-grant universities in the United States. He met Miss Dairy Queen, 1962, and he went driving one day with his friends, other international students, and there they saw a car wash. And at the church car wash, they saw a professor, one of their professors, washing cars 
right next to a student. And my dad was so impressed by that notion of equality of labor, the dignity of labor. And he really, really loved that spirit in America that we have all believed in so deeply of meritocracy. So that's what brought him to this nation. And that's what helped me as a young girl go from, you know, I, I didn't know a word of English obeyed when I came to the United States. And then by the age of 23, through America's public school system in West Virginia, growing up in West Virginia, I became a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. So, you know, then, just like you say, just like you experience, here I am, a Muslim minority, a woman of color, as they call us. And like you, when I started speaking out after 9-11 about the scourge of extremism within my faith, I ended up with these smears like you've received, being called an Islamophobe, a racist. And the book, Woke Army, is a love letter to my enemies. <laughs> I released it on February 14th. And Obeid, when you know, when you read it, you can see that I name names in this campaign that our opposition waged against us most of the time through masked identities, anonymous names, and subterfuge. They, um, you, uh, for the last 20 years, the Islamists have now aligned with the leftists in the United States to disparage Muslim reformers, ex-Muslims, and anyone who dares to challenge their worldview. And just like you said, they have used critical race theory and this ideology of looking at everything through the lens of race as a shield. And that is how they have racialized Muslims and made it racist to talk about the headscarf or blasphemy laws or atheism, you know, uh, punishment for being an atheist. Uh, and, and I really wrote this book so that people can go deep into the weeds with me really on their tactics so that they can really be free of their insidious strategy to hijack our minds. And, and the one concept that I really love, obeyed that I learned from my friend Orly Petter, a psychologist specializing in trauma, is this idea that they hijack our empathy. And she coins it suicidal empathy, where the far left and the so-called progressives compromise their own values for equality and justice in order to get in bed with the Islamists. And that's my intention is pierce their strategy so that you're not hijacked by it and you can stand up strong to it just like you do. Yeah. Okay. Like I said, your book goes into a lot of detail about this, but there's a few things. Um, and this comes more from the left and the West than it did from, you know, fundamental Islam or, you know, organizations like care. I don't know if you've read uh, Nick Cohen's book, what's left. And, he talks about the disillusionment of the left after the fall of communism mm -hmm. and how that 
switched from support of communism to being anti-imperialist. And so there was a lot of support for Saddam in the first Gulf War, even at the tail end of the Iran-Iraq conflict. And so because the left got disillusioned and they moved to this anti-imperialist thing, they, you know, America's an imperialist power, they're, you know, recolonizing the world, blah, 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 all that going on. And so that came in on it. And then um, again, The Looming Tower by uh, Lawrence Wright, I don't know if you've read that, but it chronicles how Al-Qaeda was formed, but it goes back and it talks about, I mean, I, in your book, you mentioned the Muslim Brotherhood, you talked about Hassan al-Banna, but in this one, in The Looming Tower, he talks about Syed Khutab and how he came to the States, got some of the Marxist training, got some of that, and then went back, and then, I mean, you have the whole, I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood and North Africa and you know the Middle East, that was an identitarian movement. It was, you know, pan-Arabism, right? So it was so these things have fed off each other for decades. Yes. And it's now when all the intersectionality and everything, like you talk about the conference that uh, Kimberly Crenshaw had in was it 89 where they coined critical race theory and then all that stuff, they it came into school. So you had these people going to schools picking this stuff up and it's just building off that grievance. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I just, um, I, I did read Looming's Hour and, you know, really appreciated that at that time, Lawrence Wright was able to dissect, you know, this ideology that brought us to this awful place of 9-11. And that was such an important analysis that unfortunately, even journalists are refusing to do now, because this campaign to silence any serious conversation about Islamic extremism has um, been so effectively uh, silenced, you know, out of fear of being called a racist and Islamophobe, being put on this anti-Muslim extremist list by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, and and I just really um, think, you know, as you're re remembering that history, just think about like how far how deeply embedded, um, you know, this movement is that I chronicle in the book, and and yet how um, ineffective our strategy has been in defeating them. I just ordered what's left, um, and and I I just really agree with you um, about the long war that the Islamists that believe in political Islam have been waging, marrying themselves with the Marxists and socialists, and so. You know, this isn't a video interview, but when people see the book, which you can get at Amazon, you'll see the dramatic cover, um, hammer and sickle at the top left corner, and then the crescent and star, crescent moon and star of Islam in the bottom right corner. It was shocking to me, Obeda, even when I saw it. <laughs> Man, I got to tell you, what happened is in the summer of 2020, when I ended up in the front lines of the battle over our children's education in the United States of America, I started seeing the players from the Council on American Islamic Relations emerging in that battle with activists from the far left who had very different social values, right? Yeah. I then rewrote the whole book, Obey. I rewrote it. And I you are the beneficiary of an education that I got that summer.
from folks like a fellow dad here in Fairfax County, Virginia, Glenn Miller, who literally studied under Derek Bell, the godfather of critical race theory at Harvard Law School. He studied alongside Kimberly Crenshaw. I learned from Jim James Lindsay, who has been, you know, a real uh, translator for people of these these big texts from history that have led us to critical race theory in the modern day. And I went back and obeyed. You know what I did? I literally went back and simply added that extra layer, like, like creating a map, you know, on Google maps, <laughs> another layer of every Muslim activist that I explored and their quote, intersectionality with critical race theory. And that's how I discovered Kimberly Crenshaw working beside Muslim ideologues at UCLA, uh, in, in, engaging with Linda Sarsour in the Women's March. And that is how we now have this battle cry, you know, in, um, in Ferguson, Missouri, from Ferguson to Gaza, you know, as part of this activist community and um and to this day we have that marriage happening yeah and i mean the the far left thing too like that's one thing again you know i was never anyone who was vocal or anything like that it was only after i came back from overseas that i was like something went really wrong and what's going on but if you look at it okay, the iranian revolution the you know the islamic revolution in iran in 79 that would not have happened if it wasn't for communist students. And then if right. you look at places like South Yemen was a communist yeah. country, like there is, there has been that affiliation between far left and Islam over and over again throughout the years. And it's just, I can see why they would, you know, go to this grievance ideology because it's, it's so easy to gain like the whole idea of harm and words can harm you. So if you, if I say something that criticizes Islam, you know, you already have that with the fundamentalists where if I criticize Islam, I'm criticizing them personally because they are Islam apparently. Um, so, I mean, you, you have that, it's just so easy for them to get gamed and it didn't work out too well for the communists in Iran. Let's just put it that way. Right. They ended up dead. And, yeah. um, and that is, uh, you know, deal with the devil that they made in trusting Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, and my second book was about, my first book is the hot one, man, Obeyed, that you need to get me back to talk about. Yeah. I explored Tantra and Tantra, tantric sex and meditation. <laughs> so I ended up going on a completely different direction because of you know, just the tragedies that happened after 9-11 and with 9-11. But man, I was on a completely different journey, a spiritual journey. And that was my first book. My second book was about being a Muslim woman trying to challenge Islamic extremism. And I just couldn't believe that um, there was that, you know, contradiction between the progressives in the United States and Europe and and Canada who just didn't understand what we were talking about, trying to push and promote Islamic feminism. And then I went back and I saw Ali Shariati's work in Iran leading to 
the marriage with the um uh you know Ayatollah and his murder really right his execution as an intellectual after the Islamists actually took power in 79 you know I would love because I bet there's going to be a lot of listeners from my side who uh, don't know you personally do you mind if you just tell you uh, what you're comfortable telling about your own story and your what brought you to this place so babe I know I don't want to turn the microphone around but I'd like you to introduce yourself I started doubting Islam when I was young. Um, Where were so, you? I, okay, so I was very similar to you. My I moved to my family moved to Canada. Where were you and, born? I, I was born in India. I was born in Hyderabad. Um, I was born in '69. My family moved here in '75 when I was six. I moved and, where? Uh, Montreal. Great. And you know, grew up here. My family was vi- so in India back in that time as well. Like Islam in India was very very moderate. Um, yeah. It was. And then, so, you know, my parents weren't quite strict or, you know, they were, they were pious. My mom prayed, my, my dad, you know, gave the zakat to the, uh, to the mosque and like, you know, they, they were pious and all that. Um, but they weren't very strict. Uh, and I started questioning it just because of Carl Sagan and Cosmos. Yeah. And, and then, uh, by the time I was 16, I just couldn't, I was like, no, this doesn't fit for me. I, you know, I can't find the proof for it. Whereas if I follow science or whatever, they give me the proof, like there's too many contradictions. And I was just pretty much living my life. And in 2002, I went overseas and started contracting with the military. And then, um, I mean, I worked in Bosnia and Kosovo and Sudan and Haiti um, and Afghanistan. And I came back from Afghanistan in um, the end of 2000. Well, I came back to Canada. I left Afghanistan in December of 2013. I came back to Canada in March of 2014. And that's when all this stuff started happening. Yeah, and I had friends who would say, "Oh, I'm glad you're saying some sort of stuff about Islam because I can't speak up about it because I'm not brown." I was like, "What the hell does that have to do with anything?" Mm-hmm. And when I left Canada, it was, you know, I may disagree with you, but I'll defend your right to say it. When I came back, was I disagree with you, and you should never be allowed to speak again. Right. And so, yeah. uh, and I just wanted to know where that came from. So yeah. I went down a few wrong t- turns and like you know going to some weird rabbit holes, and I started you know, here in critical race theory and intersectionality and stuff. Like I said, I, I did a poli-sci degree, so I got out of university in 95. Um, so like I said, I'd, I'd come across postmodernism and some post-colonialism, um, none of the CRT stuff uh, or intersectionality really, but, and so I just started reading it. And then I, you know, that's when I could see why I was called a white supremacist for the, uh, you know, attacking Islam. It's not so much that I'm white. It's that I've taken on the ideas of white supremacy. And it's, it's just a weird concept. It's like Nicole Hannah Jones in the last election, when she said, you know, there's a difference between racially black and politically black. Right. So that, that right. like that, that kind of idea started coming up and um, I just started seeing it. And then, you know, the first thing I noticed was, okay, this is a very religious movement. They have their own blasphemy laws. They have their own you know, heresy laws, they have their own punishments for apostasy, you know, uh, conservative black people, the way I saw them being talked about was the same way I saw ex-Muslims and reform Muslims being talked about. Like you weren't, you know, you're not really black. You don't, you know, you're a race trader, you're um, a coconut or bounty bar, or you know, house Muslim, all this kind of stuff. And it just, for me, it was just trying to figure out what was going on and why like how the hell did we get here? And now I look at 
you know, I was like I said, that was 2014. So nine years later, I look at my country. Yeah. Um, our immigration department has a definition of white privilege. It doesn't matter your race or your skin color. If you hold ideas, if you have ideas that uphold white supremacy culture, you're you have white privilege. And how they define white supremacy culture is that you know the the graphic from the Smithsonian. There, uh, you know, professionalism, love of the written word, urge, sense of urgency, um, uh, punctuality, like all these things. They define that as white supremacy, and they're teaching that to our diplomats. Right. So it's and I like I see the real world effects, and I also see the world real world effects of what's this, what this ideology is doing, to where we export it. I mean, take Africa for instance. China owns ports up and down that continent we're sending intersectionality and critical race theory and in south africa they were having conferences starting in 2016 about how science must fall and in 2020 or 2021 they introduced black physics so like like i came up from it from that angle like i'm like you're hurting ourselves but you're also the people you purport to help you're giving them something so awful that they're not going to be able to you know, get their own liberation. Like in India, there's a woman, uh, I forget her name, Vishavi, something or other. She did a, she's got a couple of documentaries out about the gender stuff. And she's talking about how women are losing their rights in India before they can even get them because mm-hmm. of the gender ideology. So sorry, yeah. ramble there a bit. No, no. I'm so glad for that context for myself also. And then everybody who's listening, because, you know, I think it's just so important to understand that all of us come to it from a very thoughtful place. You know, the far left wants to talk about lived experience, but wow, listen to yours. You know, you have lived the experience. You have been in the trenches literally with Muslims trying to bring equal rights, civil society and rule of law to societies like Afghanistan. Um, it's, it's noble work. And, it, it should transcend religion, exactly. Like, you don't come into it as a Muslim, and now you're an ex-Muslim. And, but values are values, and you have been fighting it. Um, I have to tell you that, you know, I bet you um, were there till about 75, and I, I, we would have crossed paths because I left India, Hyderabad, actually, in 1969, when you were born. Not that I got the memo that you were around and I was like, I must have gotten the memo and be like, okay, Obey's got this. Like, he's got it. So I can move to India, to America. But I went back right about 75. So I bet somewhere in the bazaar. We <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. The, the, the thing you mentioned about the English, that it kind of made me laugh because, so, you know, I got here, I was six years old, went to kindergarten, yeah. uh, staying with my aunt and uncle and my aunt aunt's preparing lunches for us for when we go to school and she said oh you're gonna have a recess here's your little snack and she gave me Uh cookies Uh now i grew up in india i learned the queen's english you know and the kindergarten teacher when we had recess and we said take out your snacks and i was eating my cookies she came up to me and said no no please tell your mom to give you healthy snacks you shouldn't have cookies i looked at her like she was deranged i'm like these aren't cookies these are biscuits i had no idea what a cookie was i love it that's so great. That's so cool. Like I had no clue what a cookie was. I just like, yeah. Right. And you know, I heard that biscuits have better nutritional value than cookies. <laughs> that's so but yeah. Great. No, mean, it's it, but that's that's one thing. Like, I, I don't know, I'll ask you this. This is my personal take on some of this stuff. And 
and I'm not saying I, you know, okay, I, yes, I experienced some racism, but I'm what I'm saying here, I'm not calling it racism or any kind of thing like that, but I came to Canada and I was told about, you know, enlightenment values and, you know, openness and, you know, true diversity, not what they're piling off these days. And my parents took courses on Canadian values and and laws and just, you know, like you can practice your religion, but you can't force it on other people, like that kind of stuff. Um, But at the same point too, there was, you know, like I go over to a friend's house for dinner and their mom's like, oh, they're curious and they're asking questions. Now it would be called microaggressions, right? Right. So for for a little while, there was a sense, it wasn't like I, I didn't belong or I didn't have friends, but there was also a sense of, me being an outsider, but these are the values that are given. And these are the ones I choose more than just oh, because I was born here or anything like that. I yeah. s- I've seen the other side of it. I choose these values over, you know, what I saw in India. And so I, I kind of held to those more than I think someone who was born here and just kind of took it for granted, who'd never mm-hmm. seen anything else. But yeah. also at the same time, it's like, this is what you promised me as a country. So I'm going to hold you to it. So when I see someone like, and I, you know, I can talk about Canadian politics. There's wasn't just Trudeau, but what Trudeau's done in, since 2015 to this country, I'm like, I'm appalled. I'm, I'm disgusted because again, I'm, I saw it from the outside and I saw these and, you know, it's a betrayal of everything that I was taught when I, since I got here. Like, I don't know if that's for yeah. you, if that's something similar oh, or not. Yeah. No, very much. I, I'm so glad that you, you know, um, just went deep into your own story and like we can connect on that point because yes, you know, in this new really bigotry, I think, of um, the critical race theory lens, they would present that beautiful cookie biscuit moment as white supremacy, you know, of your teacher over you as a student of color Uh you know, that she's so, she has to force you to her rule book, you know, all of their little checklist of what is examples of white supremacy. But for you, it was a precious little moment and um, of you're just asserting your own identity and your own words, you know, your own language and your mom's, the value, the love of your mom's biscuit. Um, But what happened for me too is what you're saying. I had that sense of being an outsider, and I was. I didn't understand just basic rituals, just like your family probably didn't, of the Christmas gift exchange, you know, which is now removed because it's um, Christian nationalist supremacy, right? In our schools, right? I saw, I saw you roll your eyes in case yeah. anybody's missing that little microaggression he just threw out there against the woke culture um but you know i ended up um I, just like you seeing the um options out there in the world you know i saw because of your travels and my travels we we both grew up as islamic extremism was also being exported right from saudi arabia to our communities in North America. And so I saw the uh, possibilities of regression and I saw family members go choose that path. And I knew that that wasn't my value system. So I, just like you, I did choose 
values of what I call and considered in those days to be classic liberalism, individual rights, free speech, equality, irrespective of identity, non-sectarianism, right? And pure secular democracy. And um, then, just like you, I think, I, I saw that clash both within our Muslim community, right? And then now with this new emerging left ideology that is actually very racist, very bigoted, very unequal. Like equity does not mean equality anymore. And um, and it has been very, very disappointing to me, especially because I've seen it. I've seen the far left, you know, folks from Justin Trudeau to Joe Biden, the Democratic Party in the United States, compromise these essential values that you and I had chosen, you know, as new citizens to North America. And and I think that's why, like, our struggle is so necessary and so valiant. Like, we made different choices related to Islam. Like, you left Islam. I, I stay within Islam to try to reform from within. But to me, the, um, the uh, fight that we're both doing is for those values that we chose as new immigrants to this continent. Okay, just kind of sticking with this because there's, you know, yourself, there's, then if you look at, you know, immigrants from um, China and Hong Kong, and, you know, you take a look at, um, forgetting her name from North Korea, uh, she just got yes. a new book out, um, yes. uh, Yomi Park, um, yes. you know, and these people who say, okay, well, we listen to immigrants, listen to people of color, whatever, when we're saying like you're bringing in something that's very authoritarian you know it like you can compare it to islam you can compare it to christianity you can compare it to maoism it's they're all totalitarian ideologies they all have the same you know uh mo right but they're what they hate is different their focus is different but they use the same tactics and you can point this out but then we get ridiculed, like I said, you know, house Muslim or whatever, or Uncle Tom or, you know, this and that, or, you know, you didn't really experience socialism in Venezuela or, or you know, it's just, yeah, it's ridiculous. Like the, what I do know is that what I have come to understand, I, I studied propaganda as a graduate student and, you know, <laughs> and became a journalist. So you could argue I, I learned the craft very well. Um, but, you know, of course, my my moral compass is truth and the tactics that they have used is falsehood, defamation and character assassination. And I have worked alongside some actual experts in character assassination academics and have really learned from them about how that is a tactic of warfare. You know, since really, if you think about it, the story of Adam and Eve was this character assassination by the snake <laughs> against yeah. Eve, right? Yep. It's, it's mythology. Hey, if you believe it literally, it's still character assassination. Joan of Arc, Cleopatra, 
you know, I'm talking about women targets here, but of course, this has been the story of defamation to build power. And so I know that a lot of times I want to also tell people who are listening, it feels very personal. It has felt very personal to me when I've come under attack also, but know that it's part of their power and control tactics, you know, to try to shame you. And shame is such a great lever for silencing people. But exactly like you said, Obeid, when I ended up finding myself in the summer of 2020, you know, learning about the deep ideological intersection between the leftists and the Islamists, I ended up aligned and in the trenches with this amazing mother, Yu Yanzo, who was a mom at my son's high school in Northern Virginia. The school had come under attack for its merit-based admission to the school. And this was a value that the Islamists and the wokists wanted to dismantle because they want to dump down our kids in order to be able to indoctrinate. And Yu Yan, she had stood in 1989 at Tiananmen Square, you know, for freedom and liberty. And now here she was standing in the United States of America for the same principles that brought my father to this country. And um, and I, I just want to tell you something that at the beginning of this journey, 20 years ago, when I first walked in through the front door of my mosque, I had my mom beside me and my dad because they just gave me the greatest gift of unconditional love. My mom obeyed. She, she would wear a, a hoodie with Brooklyn across the front. <laughs> yeah. As her hijab. And um, and look at us now. Look at the women of Iran. You know, look at them. They have defied the um, Islamist leftist nexus in order for Masi Alinejad to now be a time woman hero. You know, they have forced the left to um, abandon on some level. They're still in bed with the Islamists, of course, but they have forced them to um, really uh like abandon this this failed failed alliance with the islamists not completely we know this um and there's yeah. still so much to be done but i'll tell you you're absolutely right that you and i we are up against this machine and i expose them i name names in the book and i'm so proud to have survived them and and the point that we're talking today because that's what it's going to take for all of us to just you know continue to have that perseverance that resilience on this point because you mentioned you know your son's school and stuff and like i started looking to the education um like how this was coming into schools and like at this point i i get really really angry okay like Yes, there's what's going on in the schools, which is awful, but it's, you know, like you have a little bit of notoriety. Like you said, you mentioned you work for the, you know, you wrote for the Wall Street Journal. You've got a, a little bit of fame and stuff, but the average everyday parents, but I mean, that still gives you a lot to lose as well, you know, but cancel culture and all that. But the, av- the average everyday parent is now fighting against this stuff. And you have academics who've seen this rise up 
and they're still quiet. And I mean, you know, obviously not all or whatever, but it's like, that gets me like, they're leaving it to you to fight. Yes. And it's also going to, I mean, at, at the end, it's going to help them as well because there are some academics now who are pushing back on all this DEI stuff and things like that. But it's like, where were you? You saw it happening in your institutions. You saw it, get, your institutions getting taken over and you left it to parents. And now when parents are fighting back, you know, you're saying, oh, well, that law is not right. And that's not right. It's like, well, where were you for 20 years? Yeah. I'll tell you the story that just happened days before the book was about to come out. And it was almost like serendipity because I needed that extra confidence as I went out into the world with this message about the woke army. One of those moms is his mom, Suparna Datta. She was a child like, like us, born post-colonialism in India. Her father had walked across the border from what became East Pakistan in 1947 to India side. He grew up in poverty. He ended up in the in, in the military in India. And she arrived in the, in the United States like my father which is dollars in her pocket, you know. And Suparna was a mom in technology, and she, her son was going to my son's high school. This high school is called Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology. And so when I met Yu Yan, this mom, amazing mother from China, I met Suparna in that summer of 2020. And obeyed. that was the moment. Literally, Suparna and I spoke at this first school board meeting together. It was a virtual meeting. She is, you know, this great technology whiz, but you know how it is when it comes to the simple technology. She couldn't figure out how to get the video going. <laughs> so her, you can hear her voice, you know, just so strong. And it was her first public speech. She was a mother, a mother, just an ordinary mother. But she knew that socialism, this march to um, extremism in our schools was going to sabotage everything, every value that she embraced about this country. So she stood up, Yuyan stood up, I stood up. And two and a half years later, oh babe, she just faced a nomination vote in the Virginia Senate. Because guess what? This mother became a political activist and she helped elect Governor Glenn Youngkin to be Virginia's governor, defeating this Democrat nominee, Terry McAuliffe, who had said parents don't have a say in what their children are taught. It was just a terrible gaffe and uh, reflected the belief system, unfortunately, of the far left. And so here we are at this amazing moment of empowerment, right, Obey? Like we, the parents, have one of our own now nominated to the Virginia Board of Education. She's nominated to the Virginia Board of Education. But guess what? At a Board of Education meeting, she decides to go toe-to-toe with the wife of Senator Tim Kaine, who had been the vice presidential nominee with Hillary Clinton. Well, Ann Holton, the first lady, a former first lady of Virginia, when Tim Kaine was governor, says that actually... The U.S. Constitution and Declaration of Independence are not 
again, not remarkable documents for children to be learning from, and that socialism was compatible with democracy and should not be, yes, I saw, I saw your eyebrows raised for those that are not being able to watch him. Yes. And guess what? Obeyed Suparna, this immigrant mom, stood up for the U.S. Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and the idea of a non-socialist nation. And three days later, a campaign began, a character assassination campaign. Sunday night, Red for Ed, Virginia. So they're not subtle about their goal. Red, as in socialism, for Ed, Virginia, puts out a story going to sound familiar to you, oh babe, that Suparna is a white supremacist. Yes, a Hindu woman of color. And guess what happens the next day? The word goes out among the Virginia activist community. They start going after Suparna. And I got this. I couldn't believe it. An elder from one of our mosques here and our Virginia Mosque Association, a man by the name of uh, Rafi Ahmed, affiliated with the Council on American Islamic Relations, picks up the phone and calls one of the Democratic swing senators, and by the name of Chap Peterson, and he says, don't vote for Suparna. She is an anti-Muslim Hindu extremist. That's the death knell. And she lost the nomination and obeyed. Guess what she did? She didn't go slink into the shadows. She spoke strong and courageously and continues to speak to this day and says that their shame of her is a badge of honor. And she is, to me, an American hero that has stood up to the woke army. I love her, and I hope everybody has her spirit in them. Yeah, I mean, it's like, like this kind of stuff too. That the again, these are you know side effects of this stuff. So they, um, there was a conference when COVID first happened. So July of 2020, there was an online conference that was put on in Toronto. I believe one of the organizers was the like one of the lead editors of the Toronto Star. Another one, he is now the head of one of the school boards in Ontario, but the whole con it was, I believe it was two South Asians and one Middle Easterner, and it was brown complicity and white supremacy, how brown people help white supremacy get along. Um, and then you have the anti-Semitism stuff. I mean, Canada hired a anti-racist coach for CBC, so our national public broadcaster. The guy was living in Lebanon. He'd been investigated by CSIS, which is Canadian RCMP FBI or Canadian FBI CIA type of thing. Um, and at one point he wasn't allowed to come back into the country. He had put out tweets where he wanted, you know, Zionists killed and Jews killed. And then his excuse was, I'm only talking about white supremacist Jews. So this whole thing of, if you uphold white supremacy, like, you know, professionalism, all that, like it's creeping in and. So also in, I think it was 2021, when uh, there was attacks from, like, Gaza had attacked Israel, Israel retaliated, then Palestinian protesters or pro-Palestinian protesters started protesting and, you know, 
United States, Canada, whatever. There were Jews being chased in the streets in Toronto and Montreal. And what does Trudeau say? His first thing out of his mouth, or I think it was first tweet, whatever about it, says, you know, please don't be Islamophobic. So right. like Jews have now been granted whiteness or white adjacency, you know, Asians, yeah. be it South or East, you know, you, I, I've seen things like yellow privilege and, you know, garbage like that. Like we're white adjacent. So we're okay to attack because we don't believe that ideology. We're apostates. Like I said, the, then they blame it on, oh, look at the white supremacist attacks on Asians. It's like, okay, but the, uh, there was a study that someone put out, uh, I think it was Pew, but th overall anti-Asian sentiment was higher among whites. And this is in the United States. I don't have it for Canada. But if you looked at violent attacks, that was majority perpetrated by black people. But, you know, they just give you the overall, which they're including things like racial slurs and, and whatever, right? I mean, racial slurs are bad, but I think it's a lot worse when they're, you know, attacked and killed. I mean, that, that's just me, though. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, this is an effort to whitewash, wokewash any critics of their ideology. And I hope everybody can see, you know, in the great examples that you've provided, the pattern. You know, that's what we are we have a duty to see the data points and come to logical conclusions about the strategy that is being implemented. I try to lay out as many examples as I possibly can in Woke Army. And even there, you know, I crossed into 400 plus pages. <laughs> but And you know, I wasn't done. So no, I, no, there's so much. Yeah, I can't wait for the sequel. This, this is going to keep coming out because... Um, <laughs> Folks okay. have to see that, you know, every case that you documented is just tip of the iceberg. You know, it's what we know. It's what we see. But we don't know their whisper campaigns, right? Mm -hmm. Their alienation of us in circles that we don't even know about. They're um, blacklisting us. Um, and And again, you know, you have to remember, to me, it's so important. To, I Every day I have a daily meditation. Make sure that the work that I'm doing is consistent with the values, right, that I believe. And that's what you have to do every day to make sure that you stay clear inside of your heart so that when you face those efforts to discredit you, you're not um, shaken. You know, because that's what we as parents have faced. That's what we as Muslims and ex-Muslims have faced again and again. But this is not about just us. It's about the tactics. You know, these are the tactics of war. Yeah. Um, look, I don't want to keep you much, much longer, but just one last thing, and it's maybe it's a little bit of a downer, but I keep remembering back to this. Okay, so the, the movie Man for All Seasons, I remember watching it, and it was pretty cheesy, and Charlton Heston was you know, over the top in it. But um, <laughs> Hitchens kept talking about this one scene where the Crown Prosecutor, uh, Roper, um, is talking to Thomas More, and Thomas More says, well, you know, you'd cut down all the laws in England to catch the, or you'd cut down, you know, some of the laws in England to catch the devil. And then Roper turns around and says, you know, 
I'll cut down every single law in the land to catch the devil. And then Thomas More says, well, once all the laws are gone and the devil turns to face you, where are you going to hide? And that, to mm -hmm. me, like I, one of my biggest things was there's going to be a lot of overcorrections and we're not going to be prepared for them. So what I see now is the institutions in the United States and Canada that protected us have them, they themselves become, you know, radicalized. Oh, yeah. And we have nothing left to protect us. So, I mean, you know, when the vaccine first came out and the CDC had that opinion where they should give it by race, and then the next day they took it away because of the backlash. Everyone's like, oh, see, it's fine now. It's like, no, it's not. Two years later, you've got medical schools making students take diversity oaths over the Hippocratic Oath. Right. Like, you just, I mean, like, I, it's like you've let everything get overrun, and we don't have a proper defense. You know, I, 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 Thank, I'm very thankful for places like the fire who are now going more general than just, you know, academic, but you know, the ACLU is useless. The ADL is okay. useless. Like, like what do we have left to defend ourselves? We, well, I'll just give it, be optimistic because I, I'm, I don't know how, and I don't know why, but I'm a perpetual optimist. I, I can, I never, ever, ever give up ever. And um, and that's because I always just look at the arc of history, you know, and I do believe that it bends towards goodness. And I do believe that whatever the um, forces that are against us, whatever the institutions in the system, like we will prevail. And, you know, you ha we have to think about it a bit like you and I both emerged out of a history in which our ancestors had the system against them, you know. That reality of British colonial rule was an, an institution and a system that our ancestors overcame. My my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, my dada in Hyderabad. We so I don't know where your family was. I was going to ask you where your family's neighborhood was. We were in old in right by the train station. I don't know if that was anywhere near your uh, house. Well, I'm okay. My grandfather's house was in the old city. Oh, lovely. And then um, before we left, my parents, my dad actually had moved right near the airport near uh, okay. Gundy Pate. Okay, lovely. So we were living near the um, train station and my it was a central location. And my dada would have, he was a defense attorney, and he would have as his clients the freedom fighters who were being tried by the British for fighting for India's freedom, and he would most often lose. And they would be sent to the Guantanamo Bay of India down in the Andaman Nicobar Islands, right? The Kalapani, mm -hmm. um, as they call it, in, to la die. We won over that injustice. And I do believe that we will prevail. I know we will prevail in the United States of America. And I'll give you just one small example. I told you all about meeting Yuyanzo and Suparna Dutta, two women moms, PTA moms, who emerged as, I would argue, civil rights activists for today's 21st century. Because the new war on merit at my son's school was a targeted hit on Asian students. Because just like the narrative that you were talking about, Asian students had become the new white adjacent and the failure of the public school system to 
bring Black and Hispanic students up to a level where they could gain merit-based admissions to the school was uh, something the school board didn't want to deal with. So they got rid of the merit-based admissions. There was a drop in students enrolled in the school in new class from about 70% to about 50-some percent of the next class with the new racist admissions process that they brought in place. So we got this outfit that is called Pacific Legal Foundation, a nonprofit, and they represented us. They are civil rights lawyers who take the mantle where uh, the ACLU fails us today. And guess what? We won in federal court. Yeah, we won. The judge in Alexandria ruled that the new admissions process is racist, discriminatory, and unconstitutional. Just like in Brown versus Board of Education, our Fairfax County School Board, which I nicknamed Unfairfax County School Board, <laughs> yes, um, they insist on holding strong to their unconstitutional admissions process. So remember in the 1950s, the school board fought Brown versus, it's called Brown versus Board of Education. Education, yeah. Yeah. The Board of Education was the institution of racism and it is today. And guess what? You will not believe this. The same law firm in Virginia that fought Brown versus Board of Education is fighting our parents, Yuyan, Superna, me, and other amazing parents. But we're going to lose in the appeals court as they go through that process because we can tell already that the judges are stacked against us. But that's okay. We're going to appeal it to the U.S. Supreme Court. And mark my word, we will win. And our case, which is called Coalition for TJ versus Fairfax County School Board, will be the Brown versus Board of Education case for the 21st century. And this will be a huge defeat to the woke army because it was, again, not just the leftist activists that were pushing this anti-merit push, but it was their marriage with the Islamists in Virginia who did this to dumb down our kids and make America less competitive on the global stage. And so, Beth, I want to leave you with that that little victory. Not a little victory. It's a huge victory. And we will keep winning like that. We will find court cases and we will use every lever of justice that we can. And we must do that. Raise our voices. Have lawyers fight for civil rights. This We are now the civil rights warriors of the 21st century. Well, I mean, that's really good to hear. I, like, I remember watch, you know, you tweeted about it and I read the articles when the, when you'd won that first case. So, I'll, I mean, I'm definitely going to keep watching this because unfortunately what happens in the States rolls over into Canada and, you know, if we can get more and more pushback to some of this stuff, other places, maybe more Canadians will start waking up. Um, anyway, it was really yeah. great talking to you, Astra. It was, it was <laughs> awesome. You're amazing. If you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you, I'll put that in the description. Also put the links to where they can buy your book as well. Thank you. Yes, please. I have an open DM on Twitter so people can reach out to me directly at Asra Nomani, A-S-R-A-N-O-M-A-N-I. You can email me at Astra, my email address is astra at astranomani.com. 
And I'm going to take a page from the woke army. And I'm going to ask you all, as you're listening, if you know of a place where you would like to have bulk orders of woke army distributed and sent, contact me. Let's try to find folks who will uh, donate to buy those books, get them in the hands of politicians, policymakers, um, and uh, educate people, inoculate them. So please contact me. And if I if I can come to your community and speak in person or online, I want to do it because I want this book and its message in everybody's minds and in their hearts so that they can stand strong against the woke army so that we can all move on to other things like gardening, right, Obey? Exactly. <laughs> Ainting. Well, yeah. <laughs> No, uh, and again, yeah, I mean, definitely go out and get Woke Army. It's a great book, highly recommend it. And yeah, please contact Astra and, you know, more we can get this word out, the better it is. Once again, thank you, Astra. It was great. And thanks everyone for listening. And I want to just say um, thank you, Obeid, because it's people like you who have emerged to uh, create now a cacophony of, of protest and resistance, as they like to say, to the um, woke armies incursions in our society. So thank you for everything that you're doing. I really appreciate it. And you're going to make a difference in the um, course of history. Thanks a lot. And thanks again, everyone. <laughs>